Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Hey, we've made it through another week. Welcome back to another hour of fun and information about science. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. My background is chemistry. And as I love telling you, chemistry is the rope that ties all the other sciences together because it is the study of molecules and the changes that they undergo. And if you have an understanding of molecular changes, you have pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen in the world. As usual, let's start out with a couple of questions for you. First, what is gold hydrogen? What is gold hydrogen? And then uh, what town in Southern France until 2005 featured a contraceptive museum because of a coincidence between the town's name and what the French call preservatif. If you know the answer to one of those questions, or if you have any other questions of your own that deal with science, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can text your questions or comments to 514-800. All right, let's get started today with an interesting story. It's full of chemicals, screamed Chef Jean-Louis Paladin as he smashed bottles of truffle oil against a wall. Uh, Well, Paladin wasn't uh, exactly America's first celebrated chef. That was Julia Child. But uh, Paladin was the first to get a lot of attention, uh, not only for his uh, French dishes, but also for his temper. Today, of course, we're accustomed to seeing uh, chefs on TV unleash their temper. Uh, Gordon Ramsay, of course, has brought this to new heights. Anyway, Paladin came to the U.S. in 1979. He opened the restaurant in the Watergate Hotel in Washington. And uh, this was after the whole Nixon uh, fiasco. And it became one of the most celebrated dining places in D.C., Well, this attack on the bottles of truffle oil took place sometime in 2000. And uh, that happened when Paladin was just returning to his uh, New York bistro that he had opened the year before. Uh, And he had just spent a couple of weeks in his uh, restaurant in Vegas. Anyway, he became enraged when he discovered that in his absence, the chefs had used truffle oil to flavor dishes. He knew that truffle oil didn't contain any truffles. Uh, he knew that it was produced by infusing olive oil with synthetic compounds that mimic the aroma of truffles, and that would not be okay in a Paladin restaurant. He didn't want chemicals in there. Well, uh, there's an interesting uh, backstory here. Truffles are, are prized. They're the most expensive food in the world. In fact, in uh, 2010, a 1.4 kilogram specimen was sold at an auction by Sotheby's for 417,000 US dollars. It went to um, uh, gambling magnate Stanley Ho in uh, in Hong Kong. Anyway, uh, a little bit about truffles. They're fungi, which means that they're neither plants because they can't photosynthesize, neither are they animals because they don't eat and they cannot move. So they rely on absorbing nutrients from their surroundings. 
and uh, they uh, reproduce by releasing spores that mature into new fungi when they land in the right environment. And you're familiar with many fungi, mushrooms, yeast, and molds are classic examples, but truffles are, are extremely interesting. They grow underground, and they have an interesting relationship with trees. They only grow near trees because what they do is they absorb minerals from the soil that they then transfer to the roots of trees. And in return, uh, the trees, of course, photosynthesize and they make carbon compounds that they transfer to the uh, truffle. So it's sort of a, a nice uh, relationship. <clears throat> and one of the reasons that there's so much attention being paid to truffles is because they have support aphrodisiac effect. Well, female pigs have long been used to hunt for the underground delicacies. And the, the explanation that is usually offered is that uh, the truffles produce uh, androstenol. And that happens to be the same compound that the male pig, the boar, releases from its saliva to signal to the female that uh, he's going to uh, provide her with some uh, male attention. Um, Interestingly, androstenol is also present in human underarm sweat. And that's the finding that seems to have justified the leap to anointing truffles as aphrodisiacs. Well, pigs in, are indeed interested in truffles. And uh, that's why truffle hunters use them. But the pigs don't like to give up the truffle that they have sniffed out. They want to eat it and they become aggressive if it is taken away. Uh, there's another problem is that when the, the pigs burrow for the truffle, they destroy the soil around the truffle and destroy the so-called mycelium. And these are the tiny threads that connect the truffle to the tree roots through which the nutrients are trans transferred. And that then reduces the chance that another truffle will grow in that place. Well, uh, Truffles can also be sniffed out by dogs. They don't have the natural attraction for the truffle as, as pigs have, but they can be trained to sniff out truffles. And uh, also, you don't have the problem of the dog trying to dig up the, uh, the, uh, uh, the truffle. It will just signal to the truffle hunter that it has found one, and then the hunter can kind of gently dig it up. Uh, now, the truffles, of course, waft out many other compounds other than androstenol, and researchers have actually determined uh, that the one that attracts the, the pigs and which can be used to train the dogs is dimethyl sulfide. And uh, the truffle odor uh, of this collage of sulfurous compounds likely evolved to attract animals to eat the fungi so that they will then disperse the spores in their feces. Now, as far as humans go, the dominant odor of the white truffle is 2,4-dithiopentane. And that's the compound that aroused the ire of Chef Paladin. Why? Because it can be readily synthesized in the lab. And you make it from formaldehyde and methylmercaptan. Methylmercaptan, believe it or not, also happens to be the main aromatic component of halitosis and of food odor. You also find it in flatus. Uh, of course, that connection has no relevance since uh, once the 2,4-dithiopentane is synthesized and purified, it is identical to the natural version. Well, the oil may be full of chemicals, as Chef Paladin correctly stated, uh, but of course, so is the truffle. 
if the chef had, if the chef had objected to the oil because his palate didn't like the the uh, the odor or, or or the taste of the uh, of the stuff because he he thought that you know he had tasted real truffles and uh, the synthetic version did not mimic the melange of the dozens of compounds that make up the aroma of freshly harvested truffles. Okay, that would be okay. But demonizing truffle oil because it contains a synthetic compound is not rational. Whether one for dithiopentane comes from a truffle or from the lab makes no difference. Its molecular structure is the same, and that is what determines its properties. Well, attempts have been made to cultivate truffles with some success. And these are plantations where they plant all trees and they put uh, spores of the uh, of fungus around the roots of the tree and hope that they will germinate. And in some cases, there is success, but it's a very finicky undertaking. So hunting for the fungi can still bring some pretty profits, especially for an unusually large specimen. But uh, paying hundreds of thousands for a fungus, I think, is, is you know pretty outrageous. And incidentally, chocolate truffles <laughs> do not contain any truffle. Uh, they're a chocolate concoction. Uh, they're powdered with cocoa powder. They may have some chopped nuts inside. And they get their name because of their shape, which resembles a real truffle. Of course, there's a big difference here that they are affordable. As far as the aphrodisiac properties go, well, I'll say that they have about the same as, as the natural truffles. Uh, you can buy real truffles, uh, but of course they are very expensive. And also uh, they lose their aroma and their flavor very, very quickly. So uh, all of these compounds that make up the, the aroma are, are wafted away within a, a week or so of picking the uh, fungus. So what um, uh, the marketers do is they either they freeze it and that, of course, will prevent the, some of the uh, components from evaporating, or sometimes they boil it. That will also preserve it, but it also gets rid of many of the, the uh, aromatic uh, compounds. Now, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing wrong with using that truffle oil. It is actually reasonable. Uh, you, can buy, uh, you can buy it on, on Amazon, and uh, you get a bottle of... Uh, uh, white truffle oil and black truffle oil. White truffle oil is the most prized. And you you can pick that up for about 25, 26 bucks, something like that. And at least you'll get a hint of what uh, a truffle flavor really is like because it does contain the 1,4-dithiopentane, which is actually found in the truffle. But it contains a synthetic version, which of course doesn't really matter. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Okay, we are uh, back with uh, some proposed uh, answers to my question. Someone said uh, gold hydrogen is a fuel that burns without producing carbon dioxide. Well, hydrogen never produces carbon dioxide when it burns. So that is uh, not the answer. Also, Drew was asking if I have ever had a very expensive uh, truffle. Well, no, I've not had a piece of the truffle that sold for $417,000, but 
But I've had some uh, real truffle that was uh, sort of shaved in very, very thin layers onto, um, onto pasta. And to tell you the truth, I never found anything so exciting about it. It has sort of an earthy uh, smell and taste. Uh, uh, so I, I certainly wouldn't go out of my way to pay any exorbitant amount. Although I would say that that putting a few drops of the truffle oil into a salad dressing uh, does make it more uh, more interesting. All right, and I think we have uh, William on the line. William. Hello. Hi. Hi, you have a great show. I have a unbelievable. It's not related to any of your topics, but I have an unbelievable story. You probably think I should be committed, but around eight <laughs> months ago, uh, around about a half an hour after I went to bed, I was dozing off, and I'm telling you, my whole body raised off the bed about eight inches. It was something like I had shock treatment. I had a surge going through. It was unbelievable. And uh, I know we have electricity in our body, but I told my heart specialist that, and he looked at me like I was crazy. Now, what could that be? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of mattress do you have? Well, just a regular Sealy uh, mattress, yeah. With with springs in it? Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe you were just turning over in your sleep, and you kind of bounced. Well, I was the uh, funniest surge went through my body. But anyways, and there's another thing, uh, another bizarre thing. I have white dots in my urine, and then they dissolve after a while. But most every time I urinate, I have little white dots. What would that be, kidneys? Well, I mean, it could be very, very small uh, stones, kidney stones. I mean, this is something that you'd have to ask a urologist, you know. I okay. Mean, there's... Might be an issue there or or not, but I mean obviously this is something that you should ask ask about. But as far as floating in in midair, uh, the only time I've ever seen that is on the stage, because as you know, magicians can do that. But when they do that, there is some clever equipment that is involved that the audience does not see. I have never experienced anyone floating without some mechanical device. So I I would be uh, more likely to think that that you had a dream rather than that you actually floated off of the bed, but that's my guess. But I don't think you need to be committed. Okay. Sure, and Tess, uh, I had all right. Yeah. Yeah. Microscopic blood in my urine, and they're testing it out. Okay. Well, yeah. This is obviously something that needs to be looked into further. Well, I thank urine, you very much. So you have not, a great uh, show. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Uh, uh, talking about the illness, uh, 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 Prince Charles, of course, we still don't know exactly uh, what sort of cancer he has. And uh, to tell you the truth, I mean, of course, I, I disagree with uh, Charles's view on, on alternative medicine. But I think he's, I, I kind of like him. I, I think he's a, a good person. You know, I, I think he's a bit misled in that particular area. But uh, in other areas, I really, I agree with him. I, I, I like his views on, on architecture. And, and, you know, he was uh, one of the first ones to talk about uh, uh, global warming and the need to take some, some action. 
but of course, he also promotes homeopathy, which uh, I think you know is most absurd of all the alternative treatments, because as I often say, uh, non-existent molecules do not cure existing diseases. And homeopathy relies on non-existing molecules because homeopathic solutions are diluted to such an extent that there's not a single molecule of the original substance left. And of course, there's never been any evidence that the original material has any therapeutic value anyway. But I want to tell you a, a little bit more here of a, of a possible complication that doesn't get talked about because homeopathy is always assumed to be, you know, just a, a benign, if a laughable process, at least by the scientific community, uh, because, as I said, it really contains nothing. And it, of course, is based on the 200-year-old practice on the notion that like cures like, meaning that a substance that causes symptoms in a healthy person, if sufficiently diluted, can alleviate those symptoms in a sick person. Now, generally, dilutions are such that there isn't even a trace of the original substance in the final remedy, in quotes, of course. According to homeopathic theory, potency increases with dilution, a concept that, of course, flies in the face of basic chemistry and, and biology. Well, there's debate about whether a homeopathic remedy is just a placebo. There's agreement that such preparations are not dangerous since non-existent molecules can hardly be expected to produce any sort of toxic reaction. How is it then that a case report in the Journal of Clinical Toxicology, very reputable journal, describes a case, a 53-year-old man who ended up in the emergency room after taking a homeopathic solution containing belladonna, commonly known as deadly nightshade. The homeopathic preparation in this case was prescribed to alleviate stomach pains because atropine, the active ingredient in belladonna, can cause stomach pain. By the theory of like cures like, an extreme dilution of atropine should alleviate stomach problems. The problem was that in this case, the alternative practitioner did not dilute the solution properly, and the patient ended up taking 4.5 milligrams of atropine a potentially toxic dose. He presented in the emergency room with blurred vision, inability to speak, dizziness, and inability to walk. Luckily, he made an uneventful recovery, but this case highlights the possibility of uh, manufacturing errors in homeopathic preparations. So while we say, you know, uh, often that um, uh, there's no harm in trying a homeopathic remedy, uh, obviously, in rare cases, if that remedy is not diluted enough, it can retain enough of the original substance, and that original substance in high doses may be toxic. I don't think that this is a, a, a common happening. Uh, I, I don't think that, that you are taking a risk when you take a homeopathic uh, remedy. Uh, there's a, one other thing that I, I should point out, and uh, this comes to my mind now because uh, just this week I, I uh, read a long column, uh, I think it may even have been in the Washington Post, by uh, a, uh, a nurse who talked about uh, homeopathic remedies for the common cold. 
Well, unfortunately, she didn't really know what is a homeopathic remedy because she was talking about dietary supplements like vitamins and vitamin C and uh, you know whether or not uh, chicken soup can cure the cold. And, and she was calling all of these sort of non-traditional means of, of treating common cold, she was calling these homeopathic because in her mind, homeopathy was just the umbrella term for all alternative remedies. That is not the case. As I mentioned, it is one 200-year-old uh, absurd alternative treatment. Anyway, uh, let's check uh, the news, see what is going on out there. You're listening to Dr. Joshua. We'll be right back. So I've got some uh, correct answers to my question. First of all, about the town in southern France that until 2005 featured a contraceptive museum because of a coincidence between its name and what the French call preservatif. The name of that town, of course, is Condom. Condom. It has nothing to do with condoms. Uh, it's just a coincidence that the town is named that, uh, and we use that term in the English language. But anyway, the mayor of the town capitalized on that coincidence and uh, founded the contraceptive museum. But uh, it didn't do that well, I guess, because it closed in 2005. I also did have a correct answer to <coughs> the question about uh, gold hydrogen. Well, gold hydrogen is hydrogen that forms naturally deep within the earth when minerals that contain uh, ferrous iron react with water at the high temperature and uh, they, the ferrous iron gets oxidized to ferric iron, for those of you who are scientifically inclined, and uh, the concomitant pro production is water and hydrogen gas. So hydrogen gas actually does form naturally deep within the earth, but it is very difficult to access because it's very deep and you have to hit a pocket. Now, of course, there's a lot of exploration now because hydrogen is a clean fuel. When hydrogen burns, the only products of combustion is, is water. Now, before we had the... Uh, this suggestion that uh, gold hydrogen is hydrogen that is produced without uh, uh, producing uh, carbon dioxide. Well, as I said, when hydrogen burns, it never produces carbon dioxide. It only produces water. It's H2 plus O2 gives you 2H2O. That's the, that's the reaction. However, today, hydrogen is made mostly from methane, which is uh, natural gas, CH4, and that is reacted with steam. So it's a high-temperature reaction, which means that you have to produce that high temperature somehow. You have to heat. And that heat is very often done with fossil fuels. And that is how carbon dioxide is released. It's released in the production of hydrogen, not in the burning of, of hydrogen. So ideally, we want to produce hydrogen without generating carbon dioxide by its production. Well, one way to do this is through electrolysis, because if you pass an electric current through water, as you know, if you remember your high school chemistry, you break the water down into hydrogen and oxygen, and you can capture the, the hydrogen. But of course, the question is, where do you get the electricity? So if you get the electricity from solar power, for example, or from tidal power or from windmills, then that is referred to as green hydrogen because you're not producing any carbon dioxide in the uh, 
in the process. There's also something we call gray hydrogen, and that is if the carbon dioxide that is produced by the steam method is actually captured, which, which can be done. But uh, gold hydrogen would be the ideal because uh, you could just pipe it up from the earth, burn it without producing any carbon dioxide in the process at all. Uh, it's just that it's very difficult to access, but maybe it's a solvable problem. We'll, we'll see. Anyway, now that I have the answers to those questions, I will uh, provide two new ones. What did Queen Victoria take for menstrual cramps? And in 1798, Andrew Pears, an English hairdresser, made the first transparent what? So we're looking for what Queen Victoria took for menstrual cramps, and uh, what did Andrew Pears make in 1798? That was uh, the first transparent such product. So if you know the answer to that, 514-790-0800, or text your questions and answers to 514-800. And I think we, we have uh, Kenny back on the line. Boy, Kenny, you weren't the first today. What's going on? Is I'm here. The, Kenny. Yes, I'm yeah. here. Yes. Well, how come you weren't the first today? What's going on? I don't know. I, I, I was, uh, didn't hear your thing, and, uh, you know, right? All right. So what do you have to say? Uh, for for the for the uh, Andrews Pears uh, in 1798, uh, did he uh, make that soap back then? Soap. Yes, very good. I was right. That is sure. exactly what it did. Yeah, Andrew Pears was an English hairdresser who made the world's first transparent soap back in 1798, and that's because when you normally when you make soap, you take fats and you mix them with lye. And that produces soap plus glycerin. And if you leave the glycerin in the soap, it becomes transparent. So very good, Kenny. I'm glad to see that you got that one right. Okay. All right. So then we're still looking for the other um, answer to my other question. And that was about what Queen Victoria took for her um, menstrual cramps. All right, so we'll we'll see if uh, we can get uh, that one right. Okay, uh, I was talking before about belladonna being a, a toxic uh, substance, but there's something that is uh, even more toxic than that, and you can die just by picking it up. You know what that is? It's a poison dart frog, and they're found in South America. And there's several species of such frogs, and they contain powerful toxins, so powerful that you just brush up against the, the, the poisonous skin and it can kill an adult human. One hundredth of a milligram of batrachotoxin. That's an incredibly small amount. It can be lethal. And these frogs are, are brilliantly colored uh, as a natural warning to predators. But it was undoubtedly their stunning appearance that first attracted South American natives who then learned through experience that handling the frogs was not a good idea. On the other hand, a touch of toxin on the tip of an arrow or a dart was enough to bring down large prey. But how do you handle the frogs to extract the poison? Well, natives use a leaf to pick up the creatures, and then they rub the tip of the dart in the poisonous mucus uh, of the frog's skin, and they prepare that for a blowgun. 
And uh, so question is, where do these poison frogs get their uh, toxin? It seems it comes from consuming poisonous insects. And those insects by themselves are not uh, poisonous enough. But of course, the poison gets concentrated in the frog. Uh, and the frogs themselves have developed an immunity to the poison. Um, Perhaps the most spectacular of the poison dart frogs is Dentrobates azureus, which has a beautiful cobalt blue color, but very much a case of uh, look but don't touch. Uh, not many predators can withstand the poison of a poison arrow frog, but interestingly enough, there is a snake, Limodophis epinaphilus. It's a snake which seems to be immune to most of this frog's, uh, frog family's poison. But there is a positive side to the powerful toxins that poison dart frogs uh, excrete. Epibadropides tricolor from Ecuador may eventually furnish us with a new painkiller, which blocks pain even more effectively than morphine. Epibatidine itself is too toxic to use, but chemists have determined its molecular structure, and they're synthesizing various derivatives which look to be hopeful. Morphine can also suppress breathing and stop digestive movement in the intestines and the bowel. But tests have shown that some synthetic derivatives of epibatidine do not hinder respiration, diminish digestive movement, or show signs of addiction. So obviously, toxins can be used to kill or to cure. Once more, we will check traffic and be right back. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Okay, I think uh, Joshua has an answer to my question. Hey, Joshua. Yes, I think the answer was that Queen Victoria used opium. Uh, no, it wasn't opium. It wasn't opium. Okay, it's a good try, though, because opium certainly can take away pain, but you have to... Be very careful with opium, of course, because it's addictive. All right, let's go to Phil in the Laurentians. Phil. Hi, Joe. Uh, Dr. Joe, Hi. I apologize. Really appreciate uh, your you don't. <laughs> Joe is fine. <laughs> hey, and on the hydrogen part there, I really like that because, I mean, the gold, the gray, the green. I think there's like blue and pink and there's a whole bunch of others. Um, my question is in reference to renewable natural gas, which is usually uh, made through anaerobic digestion, and H2S, hydrogen sulfide, where does the... Well, nat I mean, natu natural gas is mostly methane with some other hydrocarbons, but it is the end result of the breakdown of organic matter that is exposed to high temperatures and pressures deep within the earth. So... Uh, Yes, in theory, it, it can be made, but the energy that you would have to put in to compress the materials that, that would yield the natural gas would be more than the energy that you'd get back. I totally understand, Dr. So, Joe. Uh, but my question is, in anaerobic digestion of uh, you know, uh, a feedstock such as cow manure, there's H2S that is created yes. within the digestion, the anaerobic digestion. Where does that yes. H2S come from? From sulfur-containing amino acids. Which is part of the cow's 
exhausts. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, well, I mean, the the amino acids make up proteins, right? Yeah. And uh, when proteins are digested, they break down into their individual components, the amino acids, and some of those amino uh, acids uh, are sulfur-containing amino acids like cysteine and cysteine, and they will break down and release hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide, of course, is also the odor of rotten eggs. It's a very disturbing smell, and, and then, it's highly and then, toxic. So by in a anaerobic digestion system, if you inject oxygen, it will displace that H2S. How does that work? Well, not not displace it. It will oxidize it. <clears throat> it will turn it into sulfur dioxide. Sulfur. Er. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, uh, you know, the H2S that is produced in anaerobic digestion can be very dangerous uh, because it's actually more toxic than hydrogen cyanide. And there have been uh, accidents around uh, these giant pig manure uh, containers. You mm -hmm. know, pigs produce... An awful lot of manure, and and uh, before they are used as fertilizer, they're kept in these huge tanks. And uh, there have been cases where where workers trying to clean the tanks were subjected to hydrogen sulfide and and died. Yeah, yeah, they, hydrogen sulfide by is, that. Oh, is very yeah. yeah yeah very very nasty. Okay, well, really, thanks it, very it, much for that interesting uh, question. Thank you, Doctor Joe. Okay, thanks. Now, I also had a question texted in about allulose, and uh, that's an interesting substance. Uh, it's it's a natural occurring sugar, and you can find it in small amounts in wheat and figs and raisins, maple syrup, molasses. And uh, the the uh, questioner he wanted to know what is the story with this, whether it's actually used in products to to sweeten. Well. This, this chemical was first identified back in 1940, and it has about 70% the sweetness of sucrose. And interestingly, unlike other sugars, uh, it is not metabolized, but it passes out of the body unchanged. And that raised interest uh, in allulose as a potential non-nutritive sweetener. But at the time, isolating it from natural sources was not feasible. Uh, then um, back in 1994, uh, at Kanagawa University in Japan, they found a way to convert fructose to allulose using an enzyme. And since fructose is readily produced from corn, the commercial production of allulose became a possibility. And studies in humans showed that indeed it was poorly absorbed and it did not raise insulin levels. That's great. But it did to some degree inhibit the effects of enzymes in the gut that normally break down starch and sugar. As a result, these pass into the colon where they're fermented by bacteria and the products of such fermentation, <laughs> such anaerobic fermentation that we talked about before, can cause abdominal discomfort and flatulence and diarrhea. <clears throat> then in 2012, a Korean producer of allulose petitioned the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to categorize the substance as generally recognized as safe based on its occurrence in nature and no significant side effects expected when used as a sugar substitute in the doses intended. And that petition was accepted. And since allulose is absorbed and metabolized differently from other sugars, the FDA also exempted it from being listed as an added sugar on food labels. And that opened the way for allulose to be marketed as a bulk sweetener, 
and to be used as an additive in pastries and gum and candies, ice cream, beverages, yogurt, cereals. Allulose has not been approved in the European Union or in Canada. Under Health Canada's food and drug regulations, it is regarded as a novel food ingredient since it has limited history of use in food. Novel foods must first undergo a pre-market safety assessment before they can be sold in Canada. That doesn't mean allulose is banned and purchasing it online from the U.S. is not illegal. Uh, just about everyone agrees that overconsumption of sugar leads to weight gain and other health problems. And there's no doubt that we are overconsuming. The average North American ingests about 19 teaspoons of added sugar a day, three times the maximum recommended amount. It's easy to see why non-caloric sugar substitutes are appealing, but so far every sugar substitute introduced into the marketplace has resulted in controversy of one sort or another. We'll see if allulose uh, eventually proves to be an exception, but so far it's not widely used. So that's the answer to the question that um, was texted in about allulose. And uh, I didn't just uh, rattle that off off the top of my head. I had actually written about allulose before. So all I had to do is refer to my uh, previous notes on, uh, on allulose. Uh, I, I actually uh, worked with uh, allulose when I was a graduate student because uh, uh, my PhD was actually in carbohydrate chemistry and I was studying the molecular structure of simple, simple sugars, uh, a category of carbohydrates to which allulose belongs. Uh, I wasn't interested in its biochemistry or its sweetness back then. Uh, my focus was on distinguish it from fructose by the then relatively novel technique of carbon-13 nuclear magnetic resonance uh, spectroscopy. Because allulose is what we call a stereoisomer of fructose, meaning two compounds differ only in the spatial arrangement of their atoms. And that's a subtle feature that makes identification difficult. Anyway, it turned out that C13 NMR was capable of differentiating allulose from fructose. And for me, that was that. At that time, I never thought about uh, sweetness. Anyway, we've come uh, once again to the end of the hour, uh, but uh, we will be back with you same time, same station uh, next week. If you missed any previous shows, you can always find the podcast. They're on our website at mcgill.ca slash OSS, where you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. We'll see you next week. I'm Joe Schwartz. Hope all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.